Welcome everybody. Uh, this is the launching of uh, issue 72 of Jerusalem Quarterly. In fact, it's not very newly released. It has been some time. But we wanted to give you enough time to look at it online or to have the chance to buy it to read the, the hard copy. Uh, this is one of our general uh, issues. Some, uh, in some issues we would have at the, uh, a specific theme, so there would be thematic issues. But this is one of the general uh, issues. It was uh, the last in 2017. Uh, as you can see, if you had the chance, uh, we have uh, around 10 uh, articles in this uh, issue. Uh, the most important one is the uh, one in section tax and fitters, which is which was prepared by the Jerusalem Legal Aid Center uh, for Human Rights and Human Rights, and uh, and that's how we're going. Uh, uh, that's the reason why we're meeting today because this launch is specifically about crunching the numbers that JLAC had uh, received from the Ministry of Interior. Uh, Budur Hassan is uh, part of the team that worked on, on that research, but I'll brief you quickly on the other contents of JQ72. Uh, the, it's, it's our pride actually in this issue to publish three uh, applications uh, of the Ibrahim Dakaq Award. Uh, it was the first round of this award uh, for the, uh, the best uh, article on Jerusalem. And that's it. We don't have any other uh, limitations on this award. The, the article should be on Jerusalem by anybody. Given that, should be a junior. We, 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 we want to promote junior research. So the first round was uh, one. Come, come in. Hello. Uh, uh, the first, the first round was won by uh, two applicants in uh, by half, uh, and uh, but because we had uh, many good uh, applications, we decided to publish the non-winning ones. So in this in this issue, we are publishing three of those: one by Tamara Tamimi on uh, uh, residency issues in Jerusalem, one by uh, Mahdi Sabah on Al Husseini neighborhood, which is Sheikh Jarrah, and we took the risk of calling it uh, Husseini neighborhood under the risk of uh, getting objected by Buderi or the Shishibi or any of the other families. Well, nobody said anything yet. I suppose nobody read yet. <laughs> and the third is by Kenny Schmidt about uh, Al Murabitin in Al Aqsa. Uh, the new trend, if you want, in, in innovation in discourse and in uh, practice uh, against the Israeli uh, measures in, uh, in Al-Aqsa. Uh, other than that, uh, we have a, a very good piece, actually, one a very uh, interesting one, by Fat Weiss. It's about the British War Cemetery in Mount Scopus. Uh, and it's not really a chronicle of what happened because everybody sort of everybody knows what happened there. We know who are the uh, the buried ones uh, from the uh, First World War. The uh, the article uh, discusses the new scandals, if you want, about the struggles between the Israelis and the Brits on who owns what in that cemetery. Uh, and so. Nobody gets in, uh, the illusion that after we die, we get rid of our struggles. No. Under Earth, we still have the struggles. Who has the sovereignty of, uh, of that tomb? Uh, 
Bernard Sabella uh, uh, visits the early immigrants from Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and Ramallah to Chile. Uh, we have uh, a new, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, a new contributor to Jerusalem Quarterly. Uh, the the advisor of the Waqf Archives in Ankara, Sharifa Mamish. Uh, Sharifa, Sharifa's piece is about Al-Awqaf in Jerusalem by women. Uh, and in, for, the, for the period 1970, uh, 1970 to 1080, uh, she talks about 85 uh, uh, Waqfs by women in Jerusalem. Uh, what else do we have here? Yes, one by Emmanuel Beshka, uh, one of our very best uh, writers. He uh, he travels with us in uh, Palestine newspaper pre uh, World War One, and he sees the changes. He tracks the changes of of its discourse towards Zionism uh, for four years. That's an interesting piece. If you if you can tolerate all the transcription of the Arabic uh, uh, words, that's interesting. So I'll leave, I'll leave the, the good part, the, uh, the meat of, the, of, of this issue, to Boudour to talk about the numbers that they, all of us got from the Ministry of Interior. Boudour? Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, for the, for the logistics, one minute. Uh, I'll be passing a list to write your names on. This is optional. You don't have to if you don't want to. And if anybody of you prefers not to be photographed, please raise your hand so I, I take care not to photograph you. Uh, is my voice clear yes, to everyone? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm surprised my voice is very loud. So um, we all vividly, or not that vividly, remember when Mr. Donald Trump declared Jerusalem as the capital of Israel in December last year. This was one event that triggered a lot of attention to Jerusalem, and suddenly we've seen a, an influx of journalists coming to cover Jerusalem to talk about the violence that ensued, because people remember to write about Jerusalem only when there is violence or when there is something interesting or flashy happening. So four months or, four, or more than four months since Donald Trump's declaration, uh, Jerusalem is still under occupation, obviously, but the journalists have uh, departed, or most of them have departed. One aspect that not that many people focused on when uh, describing the effect of Trump's declaration and when writing about Jerusalem is, in fact, the people of Jerusalem. Because after all, Jerusalem is not just sacred places and heavenly uh, places of worship. It's also about the people who live in the city and who go through an everyday form of violence. And in this presentation, I'm going to talk about the, what I want to call the architecture of violence, repression, and displacement in Jerusalem. And we are talking about a multi-layered, very complex architecture that is made up of various components and various pillars. And I'm going to try to uh, trace some of the invisible uh, pillars of this architecture. Because the violence to which Palestinians in Jerusalem are subjected is not just the form of visible direct violence. Because obviously we all know about people who get attacked during protests or children who get shot or taken snatched from their houses at night to be arrested and other forms of violence. This is the visible violence 
the one that at least can be covered or can be traced. But there is another form of violence that is just as equally important and uh, which afflicts Palestinian, I can say on an hourly, not just on a daily basis. And it's the bureaucracy of Israel's occupation and this colonial matrix of dominant and control that Israel tries to insert under the objective geese of uh, in, uh, ensuring security and just uh, maintaining order. And this is a very important part of Israel's demographic engineering and reimagining of Jerusalem and maintaining a Jewish demographic majority and expanding uh, Jewish control over the uh, city of Jerusalem. In order to understand how this matrix of control works, we try to capture it in numbers. But before delving in these numbers, it's very important to say that numbers don't tell the whole story. I can give you so many figures about the numbers of Palestinians whose residency was revoked, or the number of Palestinians who have been prohibited of living with their uh, families in Jerusalem. But the numbers don't even begin to tell the stories of the fragmentation that these families go through, of the horror, of the pain that a mother feels when she is prevented of registering her child as, uh, uh, as living in Jerusalem, of the pain that one will have to decide who I get to marry according to his, uh, the color of his ID, not according to the fact that she loves him or not. So this is why, while numbers are important to uh, identify a certain trend, they don't begin to tell the story. So when we talk about numbers, I'm going to talk about four major parts. The first part is about residency revocation. The second part is about family unification. The third part is about child registration. And the fourth is about home demolitions. And while home demolition seems to be a bit foreign within the, this category, it's also, I believe, a very important part of this, uh, what we describe this architecture of violence, repression, and displacement, because all of these measures are aimed at one certain aspect, which is having as much Palestinian led in Jerusalem to the Jews and as less Palestinians as possible, and re-engineering, doing a demographic re-engineering to the city of Jerusalem. So first, starting with uh, residency revocation, the numbers that we asked for at JLAC, we, we submitted a formal request to the Israeli Ministry of Interior in order to get formal numbers. Uh, and the numbers we asked for pertain to the years between 2013 and 2017. So in uh, regards to residency revocation, according to the numbers that they gave us, 287 Palestinian Jerusalemites had their residency revoked between 2013 and 2017. Now, it's important to say that numbers may vary. So sometimes one organization uh, ask, asks for a number from the Ministry of Interior and receives different figures. And that has to do probably with a certain classification of the Ministry of Interior. But according to the numbers that we were given, 287 Palestinian Jerusalemites were, uh, had their uh, residency revoked. So for those of you who don't know, Palestinians who live in Jerusalem are uh, classified as a permanent residence. Permanent residence means that their status is vulnerable, is 
constantly under question and is constantly revocable. And since uh, the occupation of the eastern part of occupied Jerusalem in 1967, more than, according to the very uh, to the official figures of the Israeli Ministry of Interior, more than four, uh, 14,500 Palestinian Jerusalemites had their residency revoked. But these only who had their direct residency revoked. The revocation of residency has affected tens of thousands of Palestinians from Jerusalem. Because any person whose his residency had been revoked, their family, their, grand their children, their grandchildren are no longer considered uh, residents of Jerusalem. And this is very ironic to, to think that Palestinians who had their entire lives in Jerusalem, who were born in Jerusalem, who were, uh, who were raised in Jerusalem, studied in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem means everything, they remember it like they remember the palm of their hand, suddenly are uh, considered illegal in their own city and denied the right to their own city because Israel decided, for example, that their center in life of life is not in Jerusalem, or because they left the city for one reason or another, and uh, an inspection by the Ministry of Interior, carried out also by the National Insurance Institute, found that they're uh, under this very draconian measure or category, which is the center of life category, which is draconian and not really even understandable by, by Palestinians and can be interpreted by one official of the Ministry Interior, then their residency can be revoked. Uh, while, in, on the other hand, any Israeli Jew who can make claim to being to being Jewish can and who doesn't who has no emotional or any relation with Jerusalem can come and live in Jerusalem while Palestinians are banned and prohibited from their uh, own city. The categories under which Israel uh, revokes residency vary. There is, as I say, the center of life category, which is the main one uh, under which Palestinians are prohibited from living uh, in uh, are uh, are have their residency revoked. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details of how this center of life policy work, works, but it's, as I said, a very draconian uh, measure. Uh, in addition to this uh, measure of uh, center of life uh, policy, there is also the punitive residency revocation. And when we say punitive residency revocation, we cannot not talk about the recent law, the breach of allegiance, uh, which was passed on the 7th of March uh, this year, so very recently according to which this is an amendment to Israel's counterterrorism law and according to which Palestinians who don't breach allegiance to the state of Israel will have their uh, residency revoked uh, which is again violate interna uh, international humanitarian law uh, violates the Geneva Convention Palestinians who uh, Palestinians who are under occupation and occupied community does not have any duty to to pledge uh, allegiance to the occupying power but according to the, this enacted law, uh, if there is a person who is found by Israel to have violated this, this oath of allegiance, he can be his residency or her residency uh, can be revoked. In addition to the punitive residency revocation under the geese of breaching allegiance, there is also the problem of 
punitive uh, residency revocation of family members. So as a form of collective punishment, if Israel accuses uh, some uh, a, a member of uh, a family member of a person who was uh, involved or allegedly involved in an attack against Israeli soldier, this family member, just by virtue of being a family member, can have his or her residency revoked. And this happened with the, the mother of Fadi Qumbar, for example, last year, whose family, whose residency had been revoked because she is her son had alleged, allegedly carried an, an attack against Israeli soldier. So this is both a form of collective punishment and completely draconian because it punishes someone on the basis of an accusation against a, a, a completely different individual just on the basis that she is from his, uh, his or her family. So this is the case with residency revocation. When we talk about residency revocation, this is one of the most challenging uh, challenging obstacles that Palestinians have and that drives Palest that uh, threatens the very existence of Palestinians in their city. The other aspect that uh, the other pillar of this architecture of violence that we should talk about is the issue of family unification. So in any normal place, if I fall in love with a person, I uh, can, we can become partners, we can live together, I can marry him if I'm not against marriage, and then we can live together in our, in my or his city. The thing is, Israel is obviously not a normal country and at all, so if a person in Jerusalem wants to get married to a person in the West Bank and want to live with her or him in Jerusalem, she simply uh, can't or can only do that after going through a very uh, daunting and complex process. Why? Because in 2003, Israel, uh, the Israeli Knesset enacted a supposedly temporary provision of the, cit uh, of the citizenship and, into and entry into Israel law in response, she, uh, the Israeli Knesset claimed that it was a response to terror acts carried out by, by Palestinians. But for Palestinians, it was clear that it was a demographic act by Israel. So according to this uh, law, to this uh, supposedly temporary provision, uh, Palestinians uh, from the West Bank who get married to Palestinians from uh, present-day Israel or from East Jerusalem cannot live with their spouses in East Jerusalem unless uh, and cannot get uh, permanent uh, residency uh, unless they obviously have to go through the process of family unification. And this temporary provision since 2003 has been extended on a nearly annual or bi-annual basis. And and despite two petitions submitted before the Israeli High Court of Injustice, this uh, this petition was rejected. Their petitions were re rejected twice, and what began as a temporary law is still going on for 15 years. Because of this law. Even if the application for family unification is accepted, what the spouse gets is no more than just a temporary order to stay, not to be deported from Jerusalem. But this temporary order doesn't grant him or her that much. It doesn't even grant her a driving license. All that she gets after her application is, sub is accepted is the fact that she cannot be or he cannot be deported from Jerusalem. Uh, according to the figures that we asked for since 2000, between 2013 and 2017 in the branch of the Ministry Interior of East Jerusalem, 2,666 
applications for family unifications were submitted by Palestinians. 1,264 of these applications were accepted, but only after, you know, only after a daunting process, because the process, it takes between two to three years and sometimes even more for the, for the application to be accepted. And it takes so much pressure, so, a, a huge emotional toll in the family. Uh, but 600 applications of these that were submitted were rejected. And the rejection of this family is a form of fragmentation because many even are forced. And I, one of our uh, one of our client, one of uh, m people who come to the beneficiaries who come to JLAC was forced to get divorced just so she, so she can stay in Jerusalem because the family unification application was re rejected. So this uh, this policy affects the very essence of our life choices as Palestinians because our life choices are not made just in accordance with what we want but in accordance with what the bureaucracy of the occupation forces us to do or to uh, do as Palestinians. And it's obviously tailored to uh, attack and target our the Palestinian existence and choices and life uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, so family unification is intrinsically tied to the third aspect that I'm going to talk about, which is child registration. Again, in any normal country, when my child is born, I can register him in the city he or she was born on, and that's it. That's, that sounds simple. But in Israel, and for Palestinians in Jerusalem, there is nothing as such as simple. So Palestinians who are married, Palestinians from Jerusalem who are married to Palestinians from their West Bank, and want to register their children as Jerusalem residents has to do child registration, uh, had to submit a child registration, uh, registration application to the Ministry of Interior, the, the Israeli Ministry of Interior, and have to wait again, sometimes some of them, uh, and we had cases where some families had to wait three and four years to have their children registered. There are cases when the, when the girl or the boy turns 18 without being registered without being anywhere. We have cases where in, in one family where one boy or one girl is registered as a Jerusalem girl, a uh, resident, while her brother is, uh, a, is, not, is nothing really, is, is a, someone from nowhere. He has no identification and obviously this means so much struggling. This means uh, some schools will not accept him. Uh, this means struggling when he wants to enlist in to attend university. Obviously he will not receive the security, the national uh, the social security stipends that he's entitled to. As, uh, so this is the, the process of child registration uh, it, it can ruin the life of so many children, of thousands of children, just because they are Palestinians. According to data uh, that JLAC was provided with from the Ministry, Ministry of Interior, between 2013 and 2017, 8,304 applications for child registration uh, were, ex were uh, submitted. Of those, 5,735 applications were accepted, while 850 were rejected. The others are still pending, uh, uh, and pending for a long time. We have. Like, dozens of cases that have been pending since 2013, which is for five years the kid is no, doesn't even know who he is or who is supposed to be, and his life is completely fixated on this issue. Will I ever receive my uh, residency? Will I ever be classified or have this very, that, which is supposed under all 
conventions and under the international convention for the rights of the child this is supposed the right to residency the right to ha to know who you are your identification is supposed to be very clear it is supposed to be inalienable but again not here and uh, when we talk about all these applications it's important to mention the gendered aspect of this because who the one who has to complete to all the time trace what's going on to go to courts if needed to go to the organization to go to the ministry of interior is usually the mother is usually the woman he, she is the one who had to bear the brunt of following through and constantly following up because in many cases probably the, the the husband is working and even when we are talking about also when we are talking about working mothers they are the ones who are supposed to follow that and they are the ones also who are supposed to carry both the emotional and there is also a financial aspect to this because we are talking about costly processes but even more difficult than, than the financial is the emotional toll that this puts on the family and especially of, on the women, and and the, it can drive many. It can drive many of them to depression, to frustration, and this is the reality of, so, of thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem. This is not an individual case here and there. This is a practice, a policy, and which is so systematic. So these three concern the right of the resident, the, the, the right to the city, the life of people who live in their city. But there is another one that concerns the home of these persons. Because not just the existence of people is vulnerable, even their very houses are vulnerable. In 2017, according to the report uh, uh, edited by a JLAX field researcher, 132 housing units or 132 structures were demolished in Jews in the eastern part of Jerusalem just in 2017. Of those 65 housing uh, units, units for housing or apartments were demolished. So we're talking about 132 demolition cases of structure. Of them, 65 are uh, for housing. And this resulted in the displacement of 240 people. So due to these demolitions, because when we say demolitions, we tend to forget. We write, we can write a story or a news item about oh, there is a demolition in Sheikh Jarrah, or there is a demolition in Isawiye. Uh, we forget, completely forget about it probably the next day, and sometimes we have been, uh, uh, in a sense, we have been desensitized to the sense that we forget about it probably after five, ten minutes. But the family who goes through this demolition doesn't forget about it because they turn, they turn homeless, and they can lose their uh, ability to stay in their city. So of those, uh, due to these house demolitions, 240 Fam, uh, people, individuals were uh, displaced, half of whom were children. And again, when we talk about house demolition, obviously they affect all family members, including children. But the effect that they have on women is massive. Because suddenly the, the woman uh, will have to carry so much uh, the mantle that she has to carry. And she is usually the one who has to shoulder the, the, the need that she had to, uh, the protection that she needs, the over protection that she will feel that she had to give to her children. The fact that these people feel no longer feel safe. And the fact that suddenly these, uh, these children will grow up in an environment where they feel that they are vulnerable, that their parents are unable uh, to protect them, and that there is no hope of even staying in their homes. And this is why of those demolitions, 25 people were first to demolish their homes in their, with their own hands. 
not waiting to the municipal inspectors to demolish their homes, simply because the demolition uh, is so costly, after Israel demolishes the houses of Palestinians, they then ask them to pay the price of demolition. So it's not enough that they have destroyed their homes, they will have to pay a fine or pay the costs of demolition, the costs of the uh, of the bulldozers that came to destroy their dreams and their houses. And then there is uh, those who were forced, there are those who were forced to demolish their homes with their own hands to avoid paying these expenses. 25 Palestinians in Jerusalem were forced to uh, demolish their homes with their own hands and this puts so much anguish and pain on Palestinians because when you are the one who demolishes your own home it makes it even more difficult to swallow it makes it such a hard pill to swallow so these four are really integral elements in Israel repression as I said some of these forms are invisible because they are very it, you can't see the pain on the faces of the families because also they have to appear strong, they have to fight, because in Jerusalem our struggle is also a struggle for daily survival. Uh, we just struggle to, to survive, to make ends meet. So this is why these, these are the types of violent, of uh, invisible violent measures that usually don't make it to mainstream media or not even to other forms of media, but they are so influential in the way Palestinians uh, live. And in this uh, month, we and also in, in these two months, in April, and May, Palestinians mark the 70th uh, anniversary of the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And it's important to know that what Israel does in Jerusalem is not just in Jerusalem. I mean that uh, the repression to which Palestinians are subjected, all Palestinians in all over Palestine are subjected to incredible forms of visible and invisible violence, whether in Jerusalem, whether in the occupied territories of, uh, uh, whether in the occupied West Bank and the occupied Gaza Strip and in the uh, territories occupied in 1948 in, wa in uh, what is called now Israel. So all over historic Palestine, in addition to the obviously to the refugee camps, Palestinians face so many repressive measures. And uh, linking these uh, forms of oppression is very important because what's going on in Jerusalem also goes on different, there are different layers, the, the architecture of violence and repression is also operates strongly in uh, present-day Israel against Palestinians uh, of, with Israeli citizenship. It also powerfully operates in the Gaza Strip. It's probably the most aggressive in Gaza Strip because it comes in the form of bombs and becomes the form of live bullets against protesters. It also operates itself within when you see the wall in the occupied West Bank. So the manifestation of these uh, repressive measures may differ from one area to another, from from the Green Line to beyond the green line. So they can divide the forms of repression. But at the end of the day, it's one just one massive uh, matrix of repression. Its manifestations may differ, but its effect on all Palestinians is similar. And it aims, it had two really massive aims. First, to fragment the Palestinian population under legal geeses, under, under legal terminologies. So the, every each population, each part of the Palestinian population is classified as one are some are classified as citizens some are cl classified as the permanent residents some are classified as West Bank residents some regardless of the color of our IDs we all face similar repression even if its manifestations are different but the most important target of the Israeli colonizing project which has been going on since 1948 and it's important to uh, accentuate that this colonizing project has been going on not since six not for 50 years it has been going 
going on for 70 years since Israel occupied the, the Palestine, Palestine in 1948. It's important to understand that it's always its target. Israel's target has always been to have as much land as possible with as less Palestinians as possible. It's always been a, a struggle to control the Palestinian land and to expel the Palestinian population. If not, if not directly, then by suffocating Palestinians and by forcing them to leave due to this suffocation. And this is precisely what we see in Jerusalem through the home demolitions, through the evictions, through the difficulties they put on family unification, through residency revocation. Suffocating Palestinians in Jerusalem to the extent that they are forced to leave their, uh, their city and that they become illegal in their own city. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Budur. Thank you. 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 Uh, I feel like telling you an, uh, a joke about one of the uh, well-known physicists. Uh, he was telling uh, uh, he was telling his fellow physicists, you know, I'm thinking about writing uh, my diaries. I'm not intending to publish anything, just for the record, so that God knows the facts. <laughs> so the other, the other fellow told him, don't you think that God already knows the facts? So uh, the, the scientist said, of course I know he knows the facts. But I'm not sure he knows this version of the facts. <laughs> so now, now you know the other version of the facts in the city we live in. Now I give the floor to you if you have any questions or comments. No? I have uh, one question. Yes. I'm Ashley Eric, Canadian representative of I have a question about something you said about uh, residency revocation yes. and the indirect revocation. So if I understood correctly, you said that if someone, say a Jerusalemite, loses their permanent residency, their children and grandchildren also lose it? Or is that... Uh, I'll give you what I'll explain to you what I meant. So, uh, if you have more questions, then I will answer all of them together. The machine was working. Yes, yeah, sorry. Please yeah. repeat, repeat your question. Sorry. sorry. I was asking uh, about a point. She said that she could, if could clarify. She said that if someone loses their uh, Jerusalem residency, so do their children and grandchildren. So I want to know if I heard that correctly. Uh, other questions for the time being? Yes, uh, Actually, I'm uh, because uh, yes, you rightly uh, started by saying that uh, Jerusalem is not only sacred stones and archaeological sites and so on. Uh, I'd like, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like very much to hear uh, a little bit about you. Okay. Uh, uh, your. Uh, your uh, talents, the invisible talents uh, <laughs> of you, if possible. Thank you. Other questions? 
So, Budur, you have okay. to. So, first of all, regarding residency revocation, I meant that since 1964, the the issuance of residency revocation tar targeted for for at least according to Ministry Israel Ministry of Interior figures, 14,500 Palestinians. So, those who lost their residency and can no longer live in Jerusalem, obviously, many of them are forced to live in the West Bank or are forced to live outside Jerusalem. Their children, who who are supposed who are supposed to be able to and who self-define as Palestinians can't maintain their residency, can't get residency because simply their parents are no longer residents. Because you get residency if your parents are resident. If not, then you don't get Palestinian residency. So this is what I meant by saying that if a non if a non-resident, uh, the children of a non-resident uh, obviously have their residency stripped. But this doesn't apply to those, for example, if the if the if we are talking about a grown-up or a child who's living in Jerusalem, who's center of life in Jerusalem, and who proves that, then his residency isn't lost. But only if the children are born after he had or she had lost her Jerusalem residency. This is why tens of thousands of Palestinians who's, who were born after the residency of their parents were revoked, and who probably were raised as Palestinians, and who they simply can't return to Jerusalem and have absolutely no legal right uh, to the city of Jerusalem. Is that clear? Yes, that is. Thank yeah. you. Perfect. Uh, I don't have that many talents, to be honest. I, uh, my name is Budur Hassan. Uh, I work with, I have recently started working with uh, JLAC in advocacy for the last six, past six months or so, since the 17th of October. I think I mentioned the date because it says something. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a coincidence. But yeah, uh, I will never forget that date, obviously, because I started working for JLAC, not because for any other reason. Um, and I am uh, doing masters in international law uh, in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I was born in Nazareth, so I am kind of from the other part of the green line, the one that people think is wow, is, is good, which is not, uh, which is not at all, uh, which is just under occupation, but probably under different form of occupation, but it's still an occupation and colonization nonetheless, for us at least, for us Palestinians. Uh, and yeah, I mean, what else? I love sports. <laughs> That's um, and I don't know. I've, and I also I'm a writer and journalist. I frequently write for websites such as the Electronic Intifada, Al Jazeera English. I I love to write in English and Arabic. Uh, and I love. I'm experiencing a writer block in a sense, but I'm trying to get back to writing again. And I love covering the stories of people. So I kind of like going around places like in Jerusalem and the West Bank and interviewing families in order to do portraits about martyrs, prisoners, and write about the struggles of Palestinian, Palestinian women, because uh, uh, feminism is something that I'm incredibly committed uh, to in my uh, writing. Thank you. Any more questions? Thank you, but, yep, uh, Mahmoud. Um. It's, it's, a, it's a tough question, and I'm more like interesting to hear Bedour's uh, opinion about this. But the municipality election of Jerusalem uh, is in October, and I, I don't think it would be right to actually finish today's without at least saying a few things about it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, of course the Palestinian decision always been is to boycott the election and not to vote for it. 
but uh, some would argue that when we speak about citizenship rights and, uh, and this form of uh, struggles for Palestinians, then perhaps, perhaps I'm not saying that, but I'm saying someone is saying that joining the municipality and being on the council inside the Jerusalem municipality might help in gaining more rights or freezing house demolition and so on. Uh, to my understanding, there's also a, an attempt to create a joint list between Palestinians and Israelis as well. Uh, what's 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 Boudou's opinion of this? Uh, it, it, of course, uh, uh, the understanding that the, the understanding of the um, of this um, uh, new initiative of joint list that this should not compromise on the collective rights of the Palestinians uh, for nation rights. But would it? Is how how much would you entertain the argument? that uh, being on the council now can at least help in the service uh, aspect of the Palestinians in Jerusalem. Okay. So two things. Palestinians, as someone who carries an Israeli citizenship and from 1948, the issue of whether to work, it's not municipal elections, we're talking about parliamentary elections to the Knesset, has been something that we have been arguing over. Uh, I'm, I'm just giving this example to answer yours. Uh, we've been going quarreling over and fighting with others, with one another over for decades, or at least since I was born, I think. Uh, should, we, uh, should we vote for the Knesset or not? And many would say, why not vote for the Knesset? It will improve services, it will garner rights, it will, okay, it doesn't erase the identity, because we're not saying to erase the identity, and we will have, we will keep our commitment, our identity as Palestinians, but we can use the Knesset as a platform to express, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, as a platform to express our concerns, to do some uh, camouflaging, some improvements uh, here and there. And the fact is, Throughout this part participation in Israeli elections, I, as a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship, has not have not seen that this has changed or improved the lives of Palestinians at all. So even if we kind of overcome, I, I'm obviously opposed to the participation in parliament in to the Knesset elections on a principled reasons because I I don't consider myself Israeli. I don't consider this as a right way to resist the occupation, and I also think this uh, gives lends legitimate to Israel's occupation of Palestinians and to the facade of Israel's democracy. So this is why I'm completely on principle opposed to the participation in Israeli uh, in the elections to the Israeli parliament. But even if for a second, for a, a split second, we forget about these principled moral, ethical uh, reasoning or arguments against participation in the, uh, in the Knesset elections, even on practical reasoning, this has really the participation, and even after the participation of the the formation of a joint Arab list and all the and the noise and the drama that was made after this happened and it was painted as a something a dramatic improvement and change to the Palestinian society it really has not changed at all. the situation has only gotten worse and worse for Palestinians there might be some minor changes or uh, very small changes here and there but the overall situation of Palestinians in terms of planning and construction in terms of basic services 
resources in terms of rights, in terms of recognition, and obviously our struggle is not for recognition, but if I try to speak in the devil advocate's language, the, the, the changes in all of this has, has been not even evident. The numbers, uh, there was a report recently published by uh, Madari, Palestinian Study Center, that shows that what more than 180 discriminatory, they call it discriminatory or anti-Palestinian or racist laws and undemocratic laws have been uh, enacted by Israel during the last three years since the, the, the elections. So the situ and the one the the member of the a member of the joint list, a Palestinian member of the joint list, a Palestinian member of the Knesset, admitted himself that there is nothing that we can do to prevent the passing of these laws because they are part of Israel policy. And you'd ask him, okay, so why are you participating in the Knesset? Why are you participating in this game if you know that it's not going to change anything? And obviously they will have they will not even answer this this question because probably they don't know why they are participating in this game. Returning to your question on Jerusalem, I do believe that when it comes to at least the major issues that Palestinian again I'm opposed to par participating on principled reasons. I, I think that the participating in the municipal elections will just give legitimacy to Israel's uh, annexation and it will be con it just will pave the way for more people asking for citizenship to change the struggle from one for uh, rights uh, sorry from one for liberation to a struggle for services and it's very important not to ter to make the terminology I know that people suffer on a daily basis and it's uh, it's something uh, it's not an abstract so it's sometimes the language of uh, liberation can sound so hollow for us and then because people want to live after all not uh, not everyone can think about oh, obviously all of us want the liberation of Palestine and the liberation of Jerusalem but we also want to feed our children we want to paved roads we want good schools these are our, our rights but the thing is that it's also important not to ch change this terminology, not to make it just about services or just about discrimination and to forget that after all this struggle is mainly about Israel not even wanting us to exist here. So I do believe that even if I'm, again, I'm also opposed to the, this joint list thing with these Jews, with the Jew, between Palestinian and Zionists because I also think it opens the way for, opens this reopens or continues to open because it's already open unfortunately this uh, uh, this nest of normalization worms that has been uh, flying in all over in Jerusalem and we've been seeing it in schools and in supposed sporting activities between Palestinians and Zionists and for, between some Palestinians and Zionists so uh, I do believe that even if this happens and even if well, let's say uh, hypothetically we say okay let's go just do, we won't change anything let's just do like Palestinian citizens in Israel do and try it like a game and see if we I don't think it will change much because I do think that at the end of the day uh, the Israel's problem with Palestinians in Jerusalem is, is existen existential so they can change services here and they're part of the, the, the stick and carrot uh, game and Nir Barkat is very good in this he, he did uh, he wanted to improve services not because he's uh, mad in love with Palestinians just because he thought that this would be a good way to silence Palestinians to kill Palestinian resistance to uh, make Palestinians forget about their identity and erase their consciousness. So they tried it, but uh, but he but these also mainly failed because 
whenever something whenever something dramatic happened like the for example the protests outside Al-Aqsa mosque last uh, last July like after the killing of Muhammad Abu Khadir like after the individual attacks that uh, happened in October 2015 whenever something big happened is uh, or something whenever Palestinians stand up and resist Israel will immediately resort to the stick thing it will forget about it will throw out all its uh, uh, all, uh, all its carrots it will throw them away and immediately retort to this because this is their this is their startup this is their main default which is violence so because this because repression because we they have an, a problem with our very existence here uh, I don't think the, uh, this policy is able to change even if the entire municipality or most of the municipality is made of Palestinians because it's not about individual problems it's about the problems about policy and Israel have Israel's policy regarding Palestinians in Jerusalem is very clear they don't want us here and I think th I don't think participating in municipal election or in local elections is going to change or uh, camouflage this fact May I ask a question? Yeah. Yes please so um, uh, moving from the, the um, what you said about elections and participating or not in the elections and the reason for that. So, and the question of normalization, could you speak some to the issue of using going to the courts yeah. uh, on all of these issues that you um, mm. discussed in the lecture? Yeah. Are there any more questions? Or I answer immediately? Yes. Well, there's one. Technical question. On what ground do they refuse a Registration of children. Okay. So, regarding your question, I first just a personal note. Two years ago, and this is why I'm. I will not. I studied law, but I will not practice law in Israel. <laughs> um, two. Uh, Two years ago, I wrote, uh, or something, I forgot, we, we get old, why? Uh, I wrote an article uh, about, not about the need not to go to Israeli courts. Uh, and I feel like I'm hypo a hypocrite saying that, but uh, I guess all of us do things that they, I don't know. Uh, I will admit that, so I will admit that I have my own contradictions. But I do believe, yes, I personally, as Budur, I do think that there is a serious problem with going, with, uh, going to the, the Israeli judiciary. I do think that uh, we as Palestinians, even those who go to the courts, by the way, are well aware to the fact that uh, the Israeli judiciary is an arm of Israel's occupation. And even when this court pretends to be more, quote unquote, liberal, it's not. I mean, it, it, it's not that liberal anyway, first. And secondly, it's still an arm of, it's kind of soften, it can sugarcoat the occupation, but it's just sugarcoating. The occupation will always remain better, uh, better for Palestinians. So this is why, and I also have this problem with, with legitimacy. Now, Palestinians traditionally view the court, the, the court system slightly similarly because it doesn't entail representation. It doesn't entail identification. When you go to court, it's different from when you participate in election. When you go to court, you don't necessarily identify. And this is first. And second, the, the reason what we hear also during the arguments, the other side of the argument is they say there are 
there are uh, reasons to protect your very existence, for example, against uh, revocation, to ensure family unification, to uh, prevent, uh, to protect or to delay the demolition of a house. You have no option but to go to the court, not because you are uh, so uh, uh, aware of its justice. You know that it's not just at the end of the day, but you kind of uh, rely on this small. Um, uh, cracks in the wall that may appear or crack in the system, the, in the judiciary system, that you can exploit in order, so you exploit this system in order to achieve something for Palestinians. And there is also, when we are talking about this, such major issues like uh, uh, protecting against uh, expulsion or against home demolitions or issues that are, uh, or medical treatment or ensuring medical treatment or freedom of movement, these are such uh, things that uh, close to the life of people. You can't just say, oh, I, I don't want to help you to the beneficiary or to the one who wants your help just because, well, I don't go to Israeli courts and th this is why I, 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 will not, I will not agree to help you. This is the other side of the argument. So it's a very uh, complex, both philosophical, moral, uh, and uh, political, before legal even, question that it's really hard to say. It's not. Uh, it's not either or. It's uh, you know each side of the argument has its flaws and has its advantages. And now there is a recent actually amendment suggested by Israel's uh, Minister of Injustice, Ayelet Shaked, uh, who wants to transfer parts of the powers of the Israeli Supreme Court in the West Bank to the Israeli Court of Administrative, uh, Administrative Affairs in the Jerusa in Jerusalem. And according to this uh, uh, amendment, people from the West Bank who wants to raise cases concerning land confiscation or home demolitions or freedom of movement, instead of going to the Israeli Supreme Court, they will have to go to the a district Israeli court, which is the Israeli Administrative Affairs Court. Obviously, this court doesn't consider, in its reasoning, doesn't con consider international law and is more bureaucratic and technical. So it will it will mean that the ability, the potential of their cases to win for the cases of Palestinians to win is much lower. Plus, the cost of going to Israeli administrative courts and paying um if the case if the case loses, you will have to pay the expenses. The expenses are much uh, higher than if it were in the Israeli Supreme Court. And after, if this uh, amendment, it's still and it's, it's still a bill, but we expect it to be passed. If this bill is uh, accepted, it will reopen this discussion. Is it worth it to go still go to court to Israeli courts? Is it worth it to pay to refund? Because what we do when we pay all of this money also to these courts after the, we refund sort of the, the Israeli system with all the bails and fines and expenses. We really refund the Israeli system to further repress us. So this question will also be asked, how do we still go to the court? And after all the decisions that Israeli that Israeli courts do and the, the fact that we are talking, the, the, the justices, the component, the composition of the Israeli judiciary is getting more and more and more right-wing you know, all the time. So it's always worth asking this question whether it's worth it or not, and discussing it. I'm all for having, as Palestinians, to open a genuine discussion about uh, the ins and outs of this issue, and to ask, to ask, should we still go to Israeli courts? I think for the time being, most Palestinians, most, not all, because there are those who also oppose it, but at least legal aid organization like JELEC, for example, still think they are, in JELEC, we recognize the disadvantages of going to courts, or not we, JELEC recognizes that. 
because we also at JLEC have a democratic discussion about that. So in JLEC, if there is an awareness to this, uh, to the disadvantages and disadvantages, but for the time being, in JLEC, the, the tendency is to say that the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. But for how long? It's it's going uh, it's going to be seen. Uh, as regarding to Flora's question regarding. Um, uh, regarding uh, the technical reasons why Palestinians, uh, why uh, child registration is uh, are are, can, are not accepted. So it simply first can be because uh, they can say that the child was not really born in Jerusalem, so it didn't prove that they were born in Jerusalem, or because uh, just because their their parents are from the West Bank, for example, they can make her uh, for them difficulties. In one cases, for example, we have a girl who's now 18. She was born at home. She had had an end in Jerusalem. She sent everything. She she had. They have oral details. She sent a, a child uh, a birth certificate, and yet they didn't they didn't accept her just because she she could she was born at home because it was snowy uh, and then that's it. And sometimes because uh, their, uh, the child registration request can be probably uh, be sent delayed when the kid is already uh, not a toddler. So there are various technical reasons why. But the main reason is simply because one of the parents are not from the Jerusalem area and they will say that you have not shown that your center of life in Jerusalem so will not your child registration uh, uh, request will be uh, denied the majority eventually end up being accepted but only after as I said three four five years of waiting and of costly really costly waiting and just you know to kind of suffocate the families and make them suffer as much as possible. Any more questions? Yes, please. I'd like, I'd like to say something. Um, of course, uh, I live here and I was born here and um, all the steps, every, every uh, step that uh, the uh, Badur described are true and boy, really to relive all our lifetime here uh, over a few generations. Um, it doesn't look very bright, but thank you very much. It makes it easier to swallow the pill. Um, uh, do you have any recommendations? I mean, legal or uh, I mean, uh, I believe in one thing: nothing lasts forever. Nothing, and especially in Jerusalem. But do you, uh, as a as a legal person or as a person who has lived and experienced all this that you have talked about? And thank you very much again. Do you have any? A recommendation for people who live under what these sense? circumstances. In what because sense? first of all, if I may take one more minute, yeah. the, the the question about the court. I thought that you meant that international court. No, no, I wasn't no. talking about local courts. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Local so, courts, not international courts. No, yes, but the question of going to the court. Ah. There's also international. Yes, there's sure. also a, such a thing, I believe. Yeah, sure. International criminal or something for yeah the ICC but it's a process it's it's not out it's out of our hands as an organization it's more has to do with the PA and it's kind of a political decision before anything else to whether to go to the ICC or not still there is an ICC file there is the file working on and many organizations have contributed to but uh, it's uh, the decision whether to go to the ICC or not is is more is our overall a political question. Is the PA allowed to go to the ICC? And obviously there is the ICJ, which is which 
whose decisions are advisory opinions, not binding in, as the ICC. Uh, and the, the, the ICG has issued an advisory opinion, for example, in 2004 regarding the annexation and expansion wall, uh, which said that, uh, which was actually for Palestinians, it was good because it kind of exposed a lot of Israel's violations against Palestinians and said that there are various problems with violations of the wall against international law and international humanitarian law and international human rights law. And there's obviously uh, kind of after the very recent report by the special rapporteur Michael Link in, in the OPT, there is also this, there is uh, there are uh, voices that call for going again to the ICJ and demanding an advisory opinion from the ICJ on the illegality of Israel's occupation of Palestine because in his report he uh, kind of put several, used several tests and standards to uh, elucidate how Israel's occupation of Palestine of the OPT is illegal. So this is what we can do in international law. We can obviously do a lot regarding advocacy, regarding raising our voices and exposing Israel's violation, whether to diplomats, to the EU, although, you know, at the end of the day, okay, <laughs> at the end of the day, we know that what, what these, what these uh, even the EU that always says in the occupation, in the settlements, they, they do really very little practically or tangibly to change this reality. Uh, it's just, for many, it's just, for us, it's just probably lip service, really. Uh, so w you can do that, you can we can always write to try to uh, draw different audiences to to tour to see with for themselves what's going on in Jerusalem. That's for the outside. But uh, and again also you know trying to to do some challenges here and there. But I do believe that it starts from here. You know th th if you want to change this. And again I speak I say that as, as Budur personally. If you want to change the situation, you start from here. Uh, obviously whatever happens for sanctions against Israel are important uh, but uh, you, you have to start uh, you have to start here you have to start from within so and uh, again it's a popular political uh, question really but uh, I am I'm, I'm as you I'm an optimistic person it doesn't appear like that but I really am I, I do think that uh, we have probably not for us but for the next generations we can kind of pave the way for them to do better or at least you know kind of put some cracks in the wall so that they can get rid of the wall altogether or do something of this metaphoric and physical wall of occupation that we kind of keep pushing and pumping in in all the time but whether I mean so I am an optimistic person person I, I do feel like there are things there are occasions that feel like uh, we feel so grim and depressed because of all that's happening and especially in May May is going to be brutal for Palestinians with the transfer with the official transfer of the embassy with the 17th anniversary of the Nakba with a wave of cases of uh, legal cases of evicting Palestinians whether from Sheikh Jarrah or Silwan so brutal months are waiting ahead and yet uh, I do believe that uh, I mean when you see how people despite all that you see despite all the risks despite the fact that living in Jerusalem is really not easy it's it's so daunting emotionally and physically and financially and still you, you hear Palestinians telling you I'd prefer I'd rather live in a small house in Jerusalem under all the, this difficulties than leaving although they, many of them have the ability to leave yet they're they insist on staying and when you talk to these people you kind of 
okay, it's, it might be a cliche, but you have, you feel kind of empowered because you feel that, okay, these people, despite all that they've going, they are going through, they're clinging to, to their city and they're staying in their city and, and the very act of staying is an act of resistance, at least in, in this, in our situation, because, the, because it's our existence that we are fighting for. So this is why you have to be, I think you have to be optimistic somehow, despite the grim reality. Uh, any more comments? Thank you very much for your attendance. Uh, don't forget to buy your copy of the journal. It can, you can buy it upstairs. And uh, on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, we have another launch for IPS, the Institute for Palestine Studies. It's a book by uh, Professor Rajai Busayla. Uh, about his childhood in Jerusalem in Lid and in, uh, in the other in, he in Hebron, uh, the um, uh, the notion of the, the the best part about the book is that uh, for for those who read it in details, it's that it's written by a blind who really opens our uh, our eyes on all the details that we don't usually see just living in these cities. Uh, one of the best books uh, written about the childhood in the. Uh, in Jerusalem and just before 1948. Uh, what else? Thank you very much. Thank you. Hope to see you next time. Thank you.